I really appreciated that you guys made some of the racing a little bit easier in the definitive yeah. edition. <laughs> I'm, I'm. No, <laughs> I, I sat down to play the original Mafia, and I could, I couldn't beat that race, right? And so we worked on that long and hard, and it was, it was funny because we, we had a big debate about it. We're like, how hard do we make it? Because that's something of a hallmark of the original game, and sometimes a game is really well remembered because of its flaws as well as its strengths, right? So like. Force Unleashed has some quirky things with its physics that people will still talk to me about, right? And they're like, that was so fun and so funny that the, you know, certain physics bugs would happen, right? Things that we never meant to happen because we were colliding three physics systems together for the first time ever. But sometimes those quirks make a game memorable and you have a soft spot for them in your heart, right? So we debated how hard to make that race. And at the end of the day, we're like, look, it's okay if you fail it three or four times, but if you fail it six, seven times, then like somebody's gonna put a controller through the screen, right? Welcome to Rise Above, an original podcast series by Ascendant Studios, where we share insights and inspirations from industry-leading creators. I'm Tess, the Community Content Manager at Ascendant and your host. Today, we chat with Hayden Blackman, CEO and co-founder of his own stealth game startup. Hayden is a veteran game developer, writer, and creative leader. He's an award-winning author of over 100 comic books and books. He's worked on incredible franchises like Star Wars The Force Unleashed at LucasArts and Mafia 3 at Hangar 13. Hayden has led teams and built entire studios from the ground up, and I can't wait for you to hear more of his experiences and insights. So hello. <laughs> um, thank Hi. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you so much for being up for doing this. I'm so excited to talk to you and share your story with the world with our audience so thank you so much oh thank you it's my pleasure what was your relationship with video games as a child were your family and friends supportive of your interests yeah so i grew up with four brothers we you know played a lot of sports but we also got into video games pretty early on my parents owned a store that was near a a tasty freeze, which was like a, a burger joint. And they had an arcade cabinet there that they would rotate in and out. So that's when I first started playing video games. I got to play, you know, Gauntlet and Dragon's Lair and Spy Hunter and a bunch of, usually it was older games that were coming through, but that kind of gave me my first taste of, of video games. And then I found a Atari 2600 at a swap meet or at a, a garage sale. And it just so happened that there was a video store in town that was starting to rent out games too. So we bought that and we started, you know, renting games and then eventually ended up getting a Nintendo and a Dreamcast, uh, you know, over time. So, uh, yeah, so I grew up playing games across all platforms. I think the other thing that was probably great for me as a kid is that the only person I knew that had a PC, an actual PC was my grandfather. And so he used to let us come over and uh, go into his office and, and play PC games. So I played all the Sierra Adventure games on, you know, his his old Tandy computer. <laughs> he bought a Radio Shack, and I would go buy games at Radio Shack. So, yeah, so they were they, my family was really supportive, and you know, my brothers and I all played growing up. That's so cool that your grandpa was into technology at all. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it was, well, it was funny because he and I don't know if it was just he was the only person we knew that could afford a computer or was interested in one, but yeah, he. Uh, he actually bought me my first computer too, where I went off to college, which uh, was was awesome. Yeah, before that, we just had a, a, a simple word processor, and then and then that my mind exploded there because I could play, you know, whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. 
Yeah, I I remember when I remember when I got my first PC and it was a laptop and I thought it was literally the most incredible thing in the yeah. entire universe. <laughs> no, it was great. It was just yeah, super liberating. Yeah. So did you know from the very beginning, like from when you were playing games as a kid or maybe when you were in high school or college, were you always kind of heading in the direction of making games? Was that really a thing? Yes and no. So I knew early on I wanted to be a writer. So I focused a lot of my time and energy on on that. And I always liked games and I didn't really realize that there was a you know, career in games for writers until much later, until I, I, I graduated college. But with that said, I kind of was always designing games without really realizing it. So I, you know, I played a lot of role-playing games growing up and a couple of friends of mine and I decided rather than have to go buy all the source books for Dungeons and Dragons and those types of things, we would, we would make our own. So I designed my own, you know, two or three different RPGs. And then the first game design doc I ever wrote, I think I was in high school. And I wrote a uh, design doc for, there was these old Dungeons and Dragons games called the Gold Box games. They were made by SSI and they were kind of, you know, top down and tile-based games. And I played all of them and I wrote a design doc for basically taking that and reskinning it to be the X-Men and the New Mutants from the Marvel Universe because I was a big comic book fan too. So I wrote up a whole design doc on that, but I didn't, I didn't realize that you could have a career in it or that you could become a writer or even that there was such a thing as a game designer until after I graduated college. And then at that time I was working in publishing, traditional book publishing, sold a couple books that I wrote and, and was working at an agency. And then a friend of mine told me about uh, a job at LucasArts as a writer. And I was like, well, I should go check that out because I love video games and I, you know, I like Star Wars and it seems like it's perfect. And it was a six month contract gig. So I was like, well, if it doesn't work out or I don't like it, I'm not you know, signing up for more than six months. And then I stayed there for 13 years. So <laughs> I guess you was, liked you know, it. Like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And it was like, oh, I can have a whole career here. And the, you know, there's actually game designers and people that write games. And I thought you had to know how to how to program or, you know, I'm not a great artist. But, you know, so I thought you had to have one of those two skills to, to actually make it in games. And it turns out that, you know, I had other other things I could bring to the table, evidently. Yeah, it's so cool. It's really funny because I also, um, I mean, I ended up in marketing for games, basically, and I never really knew that that could be a path into this industry sure. that I love, but it absolutely yeah. is. There's yeah, room no, for, for sure. so many different kinds of talents and skills. It's really yeah. cool that you were able to kind of make that path work for you. Right. Yeah, no, I was really excited when I got that job. It was like, because again, it just was a area that I never thought was possible. That's really awesome. Were, was your family really proud? Were they excited for you or were they like, what is this? <laughs> Well, so I had a I had a good job before that, you know, again, working at a literary agency. And so I think they were a little nervous when I went to go take a six month you know, job in, in games, not knowing, you know, that you could actually make a living in games. But I think that was tempered by the fact that it was working on Star Wars. And so in their minds, they were like, oh, so you're having lunch with George Lucas. It's like, no, no, that's not the way it works. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that that made up for it. Although I will tell you, and uh, this was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got but when I started working there. My dad pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, it's great that you're going to go work on, on Star Wars stuff, but never stop working on your own, you know, stories too. And, you know, keep writing your own things. And, uh, you know, because you're, you know, it's great that you get to play in his playground, but, you know, you should be building your own playground too. And so that that was really, really good advice that I've tried to, you know, kind of stick with, you know, throughout my, my, my career. Yeah, I mean, you write comics as well, right? And you've done books yeah. and things like that. That's so cool. 
So yeah. throughout your long career in games, what have been your like top three projects and why was each one important or fun? It's really, I mean, it's really hard to narrow it down. You know, I have really fond memories of some of my early projects. I worked on a, uh, I was hired to work on a Star Wars, interactive Star Wars encyclopedia. So, you know, it, it kind of eased me into games because it wasn't, it wasn't quite a game in the, in the sense that, you know, a traditional game would be. But I would have to say, you know, usually the, the, the games that I think really still remain with me the most are the ones that were maybe the most difficult because at the end of the day, that's where you learn the most and they're most rewarding. So, you know, Star Wars The Force Unleashed was a game that literally looking back, I'm like, we were insane for, for trying to build this game because we were doing all the things that risk adverse publishers would tell you, you you can't do, right? We were building a new team, a new studio effectively, a new game. There, there was no, it wasn't like it was a sequel to a, a previous Star Wars game. We were building it on a new engine for new platforms that we had never shipped on before. And with some speculative new technologies, physics technologies, which you know are difficult to deal with to begin with, that had never shipped on, on games before. So pretty much like every risk you could pile on that project, we did other than the fact that it was Star Wars, right? Like we already had the, the IP, right? So we, but, but even that we were taking Star Wars in a new direction because it was Force Unleashed. So, and we had a lot of people, myself included, that were in brand new roles, right? So the fact that that game even ever shipped is, is something of a minor miracle. And I, I and again, I credit this because the team worked really hard and was really passionate about the game. And so I learned a ton from that because again, we were doing all this new stuff and I was super naive going into it. And looking back, I always joke that we were just, we, we, we were too dumb to know what we did, what we couldn't do. So we just said, we can do it all. And then we ended up, you know, you know, maybe shooting for Mars and we got out of orbit, which was still pretty awesome. So, so that I, I learned a ton there. I learned, and then the, the next, maybe, you know, most challenging project was a, a game called Mafia three. And again, it was very similar where we were building a new studio. We were building a new team. It was the third in a franchise, but we were taking it in a brand new direction and we had to make it a true open world game. We effectively were rewriting huge, huge pieces of the engine. The team hadn't worked together before. So, I mean, it was a lot of challenges there, but that one was rewarding. One, because we overcame a lot of those challenges, but we really embraced the, the narrative and we told a story that I don't think at that time anyway, was the type of story that most people were, were telling, right? So it's, a, you know, for those that aren't familiar, it's, it's set in the late sixties in New Orleans. It's called Mafia, the franchise, but the main protagonist is an African-American character. He's a Vietnam vet and he kind of goes to war with the mob. And, you know, we just thought he'd be the most interesting character to tell a story about in that time period, in that place. And, you know, and I still get a, a ton of really nice, you know, fan mail from both those titles. And then maybe in the next one, Star Wars Galaxies was really rough too, from a, a kind of a learning standpoint in terms of, again, we've never done anything like this before. And that one was rewarding because the player base just took the game and did stuff with it that we never imagined they, they, they would do. They, you know, they were creating whole cities and just taking the tools that we provided them into all new directions. And then maybe, you know, Mafia, I know they only said three, Mafia, the Definitive Edition, which, you know, we did, uh, what, a year and a half or two years ago. That was great because that was like, compared to all those other titles, that was easy. <laughs> it was like, it was a ground up remake. So that was hard. And we had to launch it in the middle of COVID. So that was really challenging. So I learned a lot from that experience, which was great. But it's like, okay, we've done this before. We worked as a team before. It's Mafia. We're remaking a game from you know 18 years ago. So we rewrote the story. We redirected all the cinematics. We redid all the gameplay from the ground up. So there was still a lot of work and a lot of challenges. But 
it was much more of a known quantity, right? And there, there was like, we're not doing it on a new engine. We're not doing it with a new team. We're not doing it with a new studio, right? It was, we took away some of those other risks. So we could just focus on the game and the creative and that, you know, that was super satisfying. And I think that the end result really shows that it's a high quality game as a result, because we weren't juggling all these other risks on top of it. I played both of those later Mafia games and loved them. I also really, oh, thank you. yeah, and I really appreciated that you guys made some of the racing a little bit easier in the definitive yeah. edition. <laughs> no, I'm, so, I'm no I, I sat down to play the original Mafia and I could I couldn't beat that race, right? And so we worked on that long and hard, and it was it was funny because we we had a big debate about it. we're like how hard do we make it because that's something of a hallmark of the original game, and sometimes a game is really well remembered because of its flaws as well as its strengths, right? So like Force Unleashed has some quirky things with its physics that people will still talk to me about, right? And they're like, that was so fun and so funny that you know certain physics bugs would happen, right? Things that we never meant to happen because we were colliding three physics systems together for the first time ever. But sometimes those quirks make a game memorable and you have a soft spot for them in your heart, right? So we debated how hard to make that race. And at the end of the day, we're like, look, it's okay if you fail it three or four times, but if you fail it six, seven times, then like somebody's going to put a controller through the screen, right? Yeah, yeah you, you guys avoided the um, driving souls route, which I, I personally very much yeah, appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, game design and development involves so much problem solving and, and many hurdles. Is there, like, I mean, you've mentioned actually a bunch of different challenges, but is there one specific challenge or, or project that faced a lot of challenges that you remember that really stands out and like how did you overcome those challenges and what did you learn from those challenges yeah i think again i'd go back to force unleashed probably being the one that had the most kind of risks that we took on i you know i won't say it was stacked against us because we stacked it up right we you know we, we said this is what we're going to try and do and we were really ambitious right so i think honestly the biggest challenge is and and i've learned this throughout my career and you know and i'm still not great at it but is understanding your scope at the beginning and and saying that it's okay to be uh, you know to, to have a, a box for your features because then you can fill that with great content and you have time to make the content and the features really sing and i think that's the hardest part is like figuring out how much can fit in that box what's going to be ambitious enough for us you know to, to say that we're really proud of this game what's going to make it really stand out on the market to really stand up against some pressure to have like every game needs a portal gun or every game needs that like big gameplay hook. I, I don't, I don't know if that's always true. Like there's a lot of games, like even mafia three, I look back and we spent a lot of time exploring, like what's our new and unique gameplay hook when really what everybody wanted was a really great mafia story in a world that they could explore and that felt alive. Right. And had we spent more time focused on those two things rather than like, let's find this like really innovative gameplay hook. The, the end result, you know, probably would have been even better. So, so that I think is maybe one of the biggest challenges. And then on top of that tech is just always hard, right? And this is a really kind of maybe boring answer, right? But like, it's just, it's just hard because it's unpredictable, right? It's like, we, you know, it's it, how long is it going to take for us to code this thing? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, we're going to have to go through a bunch of iterations. And then on top of that, how long does it take to find fun? That, that, that's my favorite question always like, well, when, when's this gameplay feature going to be done? It's like, well, when it's fun, when's that going to be? Well, I, I don't know. Like, we've got to iterate on it. And we've got to get it in other people's hands. And we've got to get feedback on it. And, you know, um, so I, I had somebody ask me early in my career, why can't you just write a screenplay for the game and then just go make the game and have it adhere to that? And it's like, well, you can do that for the cinematics of the story. But like, 
there's nothing about a screenplay that tells you this is going to be fun, right? And that this is going to be the right mix of challenge and choice in the game. So uh, that was a really long answer with lots of different pieces to it. But that, those, those are the kind of challenges that I think I always run headlong into early in a game. Those are really, really, really interesting challenges. And you have a very interesting perspective. I mean, the fun in my mind as a gamer, right, is, is the sort of combat or gameplay loop right? Yeah. But there's right. so much more to it than that. Like there's so many things about a game that can be fun. Um, just driving around in New Orleans in Mafia right. 3 was so much fun. It was beautiful. There was always good music playing and I'm a terrible driver in video right. games. So. <laughs> and what's really interesting about that, and this is where like trying to explain it to people who come from outside games is that it's such a cross-discipline effort, right? So like that driving model for Mafia 3 was pretty much intact early in development. Like it, and so we were able to polish and tune it. So we saw that it could be fun, but it became so much more fun when you started adding all those other elements, right? Like the audio, I mean, everybody downplays this, right? I think Spielberg said once that, you know, audio is half the experience in a movie and it is in games too, right? So as soon as you had the soundtrack was in there and the tire squealing and ambience, that just elevated the whole experience and made it so much more immersive. And I think that's, that's, Hard, I think, for some people to wrap their head around is it's the, you know, even firing a weapon in games is not just, you know, pulling the trigger on your gamepad. It's it's the sound and the feedback that you're getting from the controller and the VFX and the animations and all those things to make something truly fun, you know, uh, requires it all to come together and work seamlessly. So cool. It definitely was a really good experience. So you guys managed to do that amazingly well. That's, well. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll tell you that story too. I knew we were onto something because my kids, and they were really little, they were like, I don't know, four and five, I think at the time they came in and they could sit down and they could play with it. And obviously I didn't let them play the, the Mafia 3 experience where they're running around, running over people or whatever, but just them tooling around. And, you know, we, at that time we had this ramp that sends you through a donut hole and, you know, which I think we put into the DLC and they still talk about it to this day. So I was like, well, at least we have that. At least the, everything else, you know, could, could, you know, maybe doesn't, maybe won't hit where we want it to hit, but at least we have the driving model down. And that, that was a big win to have that early in development. I bet. And it was, I mean, honestly, it was such a good experience. That was a really, really fun game. So, oh, thanks. Yeah. And so you've talked about uh, challenges and, and things that were definitely hurdles to kind of overcome and how you've overcome them so well. Are there, is there like a highlight in your career? Because you had a very long career too. Is there like a story moment or even a character moment that is just stands out in your memory as being incredibly awesome and successful? Just something you're really proud of. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of moments. I think story moments that are really meaningful to me across, you know, games and comics. So I'll talk about a comic one and then maybe I'll talk about a game one too. But on the comic book front, I wrote a... Uh, a limited series called Darth Vader in the Ghost Prison. And I think it was the first time that I really got very personal with the story and I took a lot of the what I was going through, you know, at work and then, you know, mostly work um, and put it on the page. And the whole story is about this told from the point of view of this cadet who's trying to impress Darth Vader and prove that, you know, he, he, he you know, it's kind of worthy of being in, in Vader's presence. And he's a he's got an injury from, you know, when he was younger. So he can't really be a, a fighter pilot like he might want to. And there's all these things that have kind of been setbacks for him. He comes from a really poor backwater world. So he's really trying to prove himself to, to Vader. And he does throughout the course of the story. And then there's a moment where the emperor tells Vader like, oh, you know, I keep my eye on that kid. And something clicks in Vader's mind of like, oh, he's not an asset. He's a threat. And so the story ends with 
you know, Vader kind of summoning to a meeting and the kid thinks that he's getting promoted and that he's going to become Vader's right-hand man. And Vader tells him, you did a great job. And then he throws him off a balcony to his death and, and just betrays him, right? And I, and it's kind of a gut punch ending, right? So again, I spoiled it, but kind of this gut punch ending, I think that I, I, you know, that I didn't realize I was headed towards until I got there. And for me, it was very powerful and kind of liberating. I was like, oh, because I felt that way in my at, at portions of my career where, you know, you work really hard and then other people take credit or whatever. So I've always tried never to do that. And I think it ties back into games, I think, in, a, in an interesting way, because I think as a game industry, we've done ourselves a disservice where we really have promoted this idea of kind of the auteur culture. And I don't think it's true. I don't think it's actually, yes, there are people that hold a vision and there are creatives that, you know, um, I'm sure I can't hold the candle to and that are, you know, have really great ideas, but you can't build a team on, or sorry, you can't build a great game on ideas alone. You have to have a team to, to build that. And my experience is that when you, you know, kind of give the team direction and, and kind of the, here's the guy guardrails go, they come up with so many better ideas than you ever could, right? And so I think it's really unfair for us to look at the industry and say, well, this is this person's creation. It's like, no, it's these 100 or 200 or 500 people's creation. So so I was feeling a lot of that too at the time that, that I felt like the, the industry was kind of, you know, not really valuing all the efforts of, of, you know, everybody that contributes to the creative process. And then there's so much ego involved and, and people, you know, they want to take credit for other people's ideas and it's kind of frustrating so so i think i channel a lot of that and i think it's gotten a lot better hopefully and certainly i hope that i live that i don't know but um you you basically answered my next question no it's great um it's absolutely great and it's funny because you almost word for word are saying things that like our art director has said and our executive oh, producer awesome. has said yeah exactly the same where like uh, you know i asked them for something where where they're like the thing they're most proud of and they're like well I didn't do any of it alone <laughs> and it's yeah like, right you have to well and i think that's the thing too is that i get i point to experience like the things that i i think i'm most proud of would, that i've done in the game industry and, and even in comics when i can point at something and go look at what we did right and there's like i i gave i threw out an idea and it was a starting point and there's some there's value in that i see value in that right and not everybody can do that so i feel like i have a talent there but then people take it and they grow it and they take it in directions that you never even imagined right and you're like oh my gosh that's this is so much better than you know i could have done it by myself right and it's probably better than they could have done by themselves themselves because you know it's a team you know team effort right so i think that that to me is what is truly remarkable and is different than you know in some cases film or you know maybe some other media right that where where you know you can have that maybe you can get a little bit farther with that that you know kind of one vision holder right and i think the real trick and you went asked about challenges earlier one of the real tricks is that keeping the vision cohesive when you have, you know, a hundred people working on it all contributing and then giving people the autonomy and the creative freedom to contribute without the vision going off the rails and becoming this crazy patchwork. Right. And so that I think is the real, is, is a real challenge of kind of creative leads in, in the industry. Not, I have this amazing idea, you know, like that, because everybody can come up with ideas. So my next question was going to be, you know, were there things that you observed early in your career that has influenced your leadership? Because you've been president and chief creative officer of Hangar 13, and now you have your own awesome stealth game startup. But so how how have all of these things that you've kind of observed and, and lived through and, and sort of worked through carried over into your leadership roles? Like, So, I mean, one thing was early in my career, you know, because I, I was fortunate enough to start at LucasArts. I did look to, you know, at, at, at George Lucas, who obviously ran all the Lucasfilm and was, you know, 
inspirational because he, he had created Star Wars. And, and I think, you know, there, no doubt about it, that obviously there was a team around him too, but, you know, it, it's hard to deny that he was a visionary when he set out on that path to, to build Star Wars. But he had, from my standpoint, starting there, he had a really interesting combination of, of skills that were on the business, creative and production side. And I always, you know, for me, I always wanted to kind of figure out a way to exist in all three spaces simultaneously and, you know, be a, a creative force and be able to, you know, drive creative and guide creative and make sure that the vision stays, you know, kind of cohesive. Some of my producer friends get mad when I say it this way, but know enough about production to know, to be dangerous, right? To, to know, well, this is, if I push to here, it's crazy. But if I push just to here, we're right on the edge of crazy. And that's what we sometimes want to be, right? So knowing enough about that, like how far, you know, can, can you kind of push the tech or how far can you push, you know, the, the, the timeline or, you know, the, the uh, types of things that we can get done, you know, and, and the, the types of, again, innovations or risks we might want to take be just on that edge of crazy which I think is a super exciting place to be. But if you don't know anything about production, it's hard to be, it's really easy, which I did early in my career for sure. It's really easy to overshoot, right? Um, or undershoot if you're too conservative. And then the business side, which is, you know, again, what does it take to make a game financially, right? What what does it take to make a game successful financially? Because we don't, you know, if, I, if, if my games aren't successful, I can't keep making games, right? So while at the end of the day, for me anyway, if it was all about making money, I'd go work somewhere else, right? Because you know it's it's a risk risky business for sure. But I, I don't want to be out pitching games that are unmarketable and that don't you know have a chance to exist, you know, in the marketplace so that people can actually play them and see them and and you know and that and that takes a lot of different forms too, right? You can build a game with five people that can go out and become a huge success because it only took five people to make, right? Or you can build a game that you know goes into some crazy new blue ocean with 200 people. And, and that's also a valid option. So I've tried to st stick in that middle or I tried early in my career. And then what I've learned over time is that, you know, that you, you have to surround yourself with people that are really good in all those areas <laughs> that are, are specialists in those areas, right. To kind of, you know, lift you up. Right. And what, you know, piece of advice I got early on was always hire somebody that can do your job better than you can. So that, you know, it, it makes you look good, right? And I'm shocked by the number of people that don't do that. And I think LucasArts had a really, when I first started there, they were transitioning from kind of almost like a garage shop mentality to like, oh, now we have to like actually launch on console and be successful, you know, with mass market, right? And and they were just experimenting, you know, they had done Rebel Assault and they were just starting to do some Star Wars games. So it was, it, it was really in kind of an interesting transition space, but everybody was so kind. And like, when I started there, I felt so welcome. And I felt so like, even though I knew nothing about the industry and they're here, I'm talking to, you know, guys that ship dark forces or whatever. Right. And they were just all so nice and, and, you know, brought everybody along and, and, and the teams were still small enough that it felt really like family. And, you know, we bonded over making games and we were working really, really hard. And, but I never looked back and was like, oh, it was crunch culture. It wasn't a culture of crunch from my recollection. It was a, we're all trying to make this amazing piece of art and there's no place I'd rather be right now than in, than right here trying to make this amazing piece of art with all of you, right? So it was just that a, a different mentality. As I've gotten older, that's not always, you know, I, I, I realize that there's times you got to get away from it in order to make the art better, you know, and come back to it when you're refreshed, right? But Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, you've been the project lead, you've been chief creative officer, you came up through this amazing sort of system, a lot of amazing other people. 
what are some of the team practices you feel are like super, super important? And are there any you kind of try to, you know, steer your teams away from? It's changed over time, right? I mean, as games have gotten larger and more complicated, and as I think we've be, rightfully so have become more and more cognizant of, you know, crunch culture and the danger of falling into that trap and the need for, you know, kind of resets and people being revitalized and getting their energy back, their creativity back, right? I think that the definitely kind of how you lead and manage teams and the best practices have changed over time. I do feel like planning has become more and more important over time too. So that, you know, is an area where I think early on in the early days of game development, it was like, you know, we're doing it on a whiteboard and Excel spreadsheets and now it's an art and a, and a science, right? So I think that's really great. But honestly, at the end of the day, I think it all boils down to communication, right? And having best practices, whatever works for your team, and it's going to be different for every team based on their size and based on whether they're remote or hybrid or, you know, everybody in the office, the type of game that they're working on the types of people that you've hired. And that I think is one of the really hard things for leaders to navigate because there's a way I like to work, but it doesn't matter the way I like to work because I'm one person out of a team of, you know, today, 46, right? So I'm one of 46. So it really doesn't matter how I'd like to work. It, it matters, you know, how, how does the rest of the team like to work and communicate? So right now we're just trying to do everything we can to, to make sure that everybody has enough channels and that they are, channels that they're comfortable with whether that's slack or you know we do a weekly newsletter now which gets information out there's you know opportunities for one-on-one -on -one meetings although we've really scaled back that's another thing i've learned in the last maybe year or year and a half two years with with the pandemic is that we are way too meeting dependent as an industry and now yeah like we, we we have like two monthly recurring meetings on our calendar and then uh and we have uh uh three times a week studio play sessions of the game that we're working on those are really the only recurring meetings and then everything else is kind of set up ad hoc so that the team you know feels like they really need it i, I firmly believe we are never going back to everybody being that back in the office i think there's so much talent spread so you know all over the world and we're a fully remote studio and it's been really a godsend for us in terms of hiring because people don't that that very i know for me every time somebody's asked me if I'd entertain a move or, or joining a new studio or a new company, the first thing that goes through my mind is, am I going to have to move always? And that's, I'm a homebody. I live near family. Like my kids are here, you know, in school. Like, I think that is something that weighs heavily on, on a lot of people in terms of like, and, and, you know, you, you enjoy where you live, right. And you want to be able to live near family and friends and the things that you like to do and your hobbies and whatever. So fully remote, I think, has been really helpful for us. I do think hybrid also has its place, but I don't think we're ever going back to, you know, the entire team back in the office full time. So I think that teams are going to have to find ways to bond and to form those connections, whether that's offsites or it's, you know, play sessions. Uh, we're fortunate because we're working on kind of an online competitive title. So, you know, you can get in with a team of four other players and, you know, and, and, and you know, jump in against another team of other players in the studio and then have the, that, that kind of bonding. Um, but I think that's going to be a real struggle for for studios and teams going forward is, is figuring out how to maintain that connection, knowing that we're fully remote, but then leaning into the, the the benefits of it. So talking about your your new studio and what you guys have been working on a little bit, I'm sure getting that up and running must have been quite an exciting adventure, starting your own studio. I mean, you you basically started Hangar 13 as well, right? Like you basically built that from the ground up. 
Yeah, so I was employee number one for what became Hangar 13. Um, originally, I was hired to work on original IP, and then the opportunity to work on Mafia kind of, you know, manifested. But yeah, building that studio was challenging in the sense that you know we 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 were kind of we weren't starting quite from scratch, but we had to figure out you know okay, are, are we moving folks over from the Czech Republic who are really familiar with the license and and the game? Are we you know, who are we hiring? Where are we hiring? How are we balancing the, you know, scope of the game with the cost of the game? I had gone through it a couple times, you know, fortunately, because I guess unfortunately in some ways, but I had been at LucasArts for so long that I had seen a number of different leaders come through. And unfortunately, sometimes it happens there is that, you know, the, the, the organization downsizes and then grows again and downsizes and grows again, right? So I, you know, my friend, Matt Urban, who's now my chief operating officer at this new venture, he and I had gone through that uh, multiple times. So, you know, we had some experience building the studios. So, so that wasn't as challenging and difficult. It was just really finding the right people and making sure everybody was kind of bought into the vision. This experience is very different. You know, I ran my own studio like 10 years ago, but it was small. You know, we, we did a lot of consulting work at that time. Investors weren't a major part of the equation uh, for the type of work that we were doing or the type of studio we were building and the landscape has completely changed so for those you know anybody that's starting a new studio it's a uh, you know i'm learning a ton <laughs> it's maybe the most challenging thing i've ever done because we're you know we're out there trying to you know raise money and and get in front of publishers and make sure that you know we have our message exciting enough but it also walking that fine line between is it aspirational and ambitious enough but also people don't look at us like we're crazy right you know i talked about that earlier that like this is something you want to bet on because this team can achieve it luckily we have a really experienced team and i think that 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 has been really helpful and we've been able to grow pretty quickly to 48 people but they're you know they're all folks that we've worked with before for the most part so we've got a lot of like shorthand and a lot of some of those communication best practices are already in place and everybody's really passionate about the game. And I think that comes from being able to play the game early and every day. So like, there's literally days I come back you know, from a meeting or whatever. And I'm like, I just want to find somebody to play the game with. I can't wait to play the game today and see what's changed. So I'll take that forward for every project I work on. The sooner you can get the game playable and have people playing it, the better off you're going to be because it's just it, we all galvanize around that now, you know, and, and, People want to work hard to make it great because they know other people are looking at it day in and day out. Our founder group and the team that we built, we have a pretty unique skill set, uh, kind of combination of skills. So obviously we have some strong third-person action chops and we have strong narrative chops, but we also have a lot of online and uh, games as a service experience. I mean, even in my background, you know, with some of the titles I've worked on. So, so we're combining those things in a, I think, a really interesting way. And it's a, you know, it's a, a the, the type of game that we're building is feels like nothing I've ever played in all the best ways, but then it's very familiar in other ways, right? Like, again, that camaraderie that you have from a, a team and the, the, some of the base mechanics are, are, are not wholly new, right? But they're wrapped in different ways that make them feel more, you know, kind of new and fresh. So yeah, it's an exciting time at the studio right now, for sure. But, so kind of switching gears a little bit, it sounds like what you're working on is more of a multiplayer thing. I don't want to ask you too many questions because you probably can't share too many details. Yeah, I, want, I mean, we're an independent studio. There's nobody telling me what I can and can't That's say true. right now. Right? But, uh, my, my other founders might get mad if I reveal too much, right? And you never know what's going to change between now and, you know, by the time we launch, right? But, true. Well, so my, my next question was really about story, right? You, you, yeah. uh, you have like the writing chops from years and years of experience, both from games and books and comics and everything. 
I don't know if there's a ton of story in your current game. You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. But in terms of story, is there like a specific story element? Like what about the story is, is the most important? There's actually two answers to that because of the industry we work in. So I, I will answer the question, you know, again, the game we're working on just because of my background and, you know, we, we hired a narrative director on really early on. And, and, you know, a lot of us have a lot of experience working on narrative driven games. So narrative is something that is really important to us. And we're wrapping the experience in a really strong narrative, which I think makes it a little bit unique in the space that we're playing in. So for us, oh, sorry, for me personally, in terms of story. So I, I kind of, I think about two different things when I'm working on games in particular. One is universal to everything I work on, whether it's comics or a screenplay or a novel or whatever. It, and, and it's really thinking about the world and making sure that you're world building and, and that you're creating a world worth saving. And I think that to me, at least for me personally, those are the types of experiences I want to have, whether that's in, in film or games or, or you know TV or novels, is that the world is rich and it feels like a place that I want to inhabit and I want to go spend time in. And there are characters there that I want to spend time with. There are uh, amazing locations. There are, you know, there's a history to it. There's mystery to it, right? There's all these things that make it feel like a, a world worth saving and worth protecting. I'm really not big on anymore because I just don't think that they they last, right? You don't build a franchise on a dystopian nightmare, right? That they're all like even Blade Runner, as dystopian as it is in some cases, has moments of wonder and beauty, and there's something really striking and, and captivating about the replicants for example right and you know that there's characters in that world that you know you want to go have a beer with with harrison ford's character with decker right so i think that like i think as an industry sometimes we turn to this like oh we're going to be edgy and it's going to be bleak and it's going to be miserable and it's like i don't want to go back to that world like i might play the first game if the game mechanics are really great but like you're not getting me for the sequel because why like why do I go slog through that world again, right? So I think that's important. And tied into that is this idea of a world that supports endless stories. And I think that's when you're, when you're again, Star Wars is not just the story of Luke Skywalker. It's a story about this galaxy, right? It's, it starts in a galaxy far, far away, right? And so you're hearing about all these events and these characters and you go into the cantina and you imagine every single one of those characters has, has a backstory. In fact, eventually I think they wrote short stories about every single one, right? And, 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 the action the, the reason why action figures for star wars were so successful is i can imagine the 20 adventures that han solo and and chewbacca went on before they met up with luke and obi-wan right and 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 i think that's really important to think about too and i don't think we sometimes think enough about that we oh here's the character you're playing and here's the story you're going to go through on this journey but it's like yeah but who was this character 10 years ago who was this character before the game started and then where could they go afterwards and i think thinking about that even if it doesn't come through in the game is really important and then the second component that I think a lot of us think about on the game side, but I think if you come from outside the games industry, you don't think about as much as what's the player story and how do you make those two things intersect? And I think that's a huge challenge still, right? And I think I wrestle with a lot because I come from a narrative background. You know, I tend to go, well, let's make this more linear here. And it's like, that's actually not always the right thing to do. Yeah, so that those would be kind of my two answers. The world, world we're saving and a world that has endless stories or supports endless stories and then uh, making sure that the player story is is really front and center and the player can feel like they're co-author of the experience so and those two things are really hard to do individually let alone put them together yeah i mean that's incredibly difficult just just giving the player agency right i mean there's so many ways that you can do that but it's very hard when you're somewhat limited right because you have to have a scope right you have to have for sure a path. yeah so yeah and it's, I, I think this is going to sound really bad but 
as a gamer, hopefully I'm not offended. So hopefully other gamers are, but sometimes it's about tricking the, the player into feeling like they have, like they can do anything. But really what you're saying is that you're choosing to do things for sure, but you, you already understand the box, right? So, you know, you're not going off playing a game where you're kind of an altruistic character and you're interacting with other NPCs that are supposed to be your friends. You usually never think about like, well, what happens if I try to, you know, attack them, right? Like, you know, and, and, and that's okay. Right. And that's, you know, and that's not an option that you have in the game, but it's one that rarely, if ever, crosses your mind, right? And I think I do think as designers, we sometimes get wrapped up in trying to solve for the edge case and the the kind of the, the jerk player that's going to try all the things to break the game. And I think we have to sometimes think about that. But I think if you go too far in that direction, then you're just then now constraining everybody in weird ways. So I think it's more about like here's the world, here's your limitations. Buy into the fiction, and once you bought into the fiction and you've kind of suspended your disbelief you can do anything within that scope, right? And then and then players, 90% of players are gonna be satisfied, you know? That's a really great way to, to think about it and explain it, I think. So you have incredible skills in writing and leadership, these really amazing strengths. Is there another skill that you kind of wish you had picked up or, <laughs> you know, studied that would have kind of benefited you over the course of your career or now in your new ventures? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, there's a couple, right? So, I mean, the easy answer, right? And the, the, the non-flip answer the, is, I, you know, I wish I knew a little bit more about coding. I wish I had done, you know, some coding in the past, if only so that I could double check chat, chat GPT's coding right now as I, <laughs> oh, as I experiment with that and figure out, you know, can I make a game on my own someday? But I do, I do wish I had, you know, a little bit more on the, the kind of coding side, but I've been very fortunate that in my, throughout my career, I've been partnered with really strong technical directors and tech leads. So, um, it, it never, never really became a liability. And they, I always tell them like, you have to explain to me, you have to explain this to me. Like I'm a five-year-old because I might have to go explain it to somebody else. And you don't want to lose things, the important things. And you know, that game of telephone. So from that standpoint, it's made me a better listener and has forced me to try and understand things that I maybe wouldn't have otherwise not having the kind of in-depth knowledge that, uh, of coding. So that's one area. I think the other, you know, the, the joke answer is I wish that I had worked at a VC fund or, you know, something so I knew, you know, how to talk to investors better. But that I think is always a challenge, right? And then there are just things that I've learned recently that I wish I had learned, you know, early on in my career, right? Like I was super naive about what you could learn from other people in terms of even writing, right? I was like in college, I was like, ah, oh, writing is a talent. It's not a skill. Like, you, you know, it's something you're born with. And then, you know, you, then you end up in classes with people that are way more talented than you and like wait how do i get to be as good as you and it's like oh i can actually study some of these things and i can learn to you know i can learn more about story structure and so i think no matter what art you're working on i think that there's always a level of knowledge that you can still chase and you can learn from others and you can find mentors and there's lots of practical nuts and bolts advice for things like writing that like I, it took me years to learn because i was just too stubborn to sit down and read a book about it right and you know, Stephen King's on writing. I, I, I plug that every time I talk to anybody that that's the best book on writing ever written. And like half of it is just like a how-to manual for actually writing. And you're like, oh, I didn't even think about this. I'm a moron. I, I wish I had read this in high school, you know. I'm just so. writing down the name. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's just called on writing. It's super simple, but it's Stephen, you know, it's Stephen King. So it's, it flows really well. And it's like you're sitting there having a beer with him and it's just a conversation with him, right? And, uh, and he goes to some really interesting places too, because he's, he, yeah, uh, explore some of his, you know, uh, past and, and talks about it's, it's, it's half autobiography, half kind of writing manual. You know? That's so cool. Well, so yeah. this kind of answers the next question, but I'll just ask it just in case. Can you think of a time when 
like another more experienced dev or just someone you were working with kind of took you under the wing or gave you really good advice, inspired you in some way? Yeah, I mean, all the time, right? Like it, it, it and it, it wasn't even, sometimes it wasn't even like somebody more seasoned, it just appeared, right? So I remember, uh, so I had a job at one point, I was a content liaison between Lucasfilm and a lot of the, uh, all, all the dev teams that were working on Star Wars games, whether they were internal or external. And eventually I got promoted and I had to hire somebody in to, to fill that role. And a friend of mine who was a producer, so I think we were peers at that time, a guy named Reeve Thompson, who went on to work at Secret Level and now is doing great things at Apple and other places. But he he basically told me, hey, you know, hire somebody who will do that job that you were just doing better than you did it, right? Because that'll just make you look good, right? And I was like, oh, that's so, that's great advice, right? And again, I think I said this earlier, but I think people get stuck in this feeling of like, well, I don't want to be threatened by that person or I don't want people to look at it going, why is he doing a better job than this guy did? It's like, no, 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 you hired in a great guy to do the job and now you don't have to worry about it and you can go off and do the job that, you know, you've now been promoted into. So things like that were really good advice. I, it took me a while to learn this, but I had somebody tell me, you know, hey, you listen more than you talk, right? And I th which I'm probably not doing on this call, but um, I think that's, you know, and, and some people that I work with will tell me I'm very bad at that, but I always try and, you know, remind myself that it, it's an important advice. And, you know, that was a, that, that, and that was somebody that was being critical of me early on in my career. So it was good, it was helpful. It was really good advice, you know, at the time to get that kind of constructive criticism. Because uh, I was going into meetings like, you know, you know, I think we should do it this way, right? Like dumb 25-year-old not knowing anything about game development. And then the other advice that I've gotten a lot over over time or heard a lot that I try and repeat to is just, you know, recognize how little you know, right? Like it's just, you, you know, there, there's so much we don't know about anything, right? Everything. Like I don't, I don't know what's motivating people when I sit in a meeting with them. I can't know. I'm not a mind reader, right? So I just have to do what's right for me and what aligns with my values and what I think is the right direction. And then, you know, hopefully that aligns with, you know, what they think too, but I can't, if you spend your whole life second guessing people, like, I think you're going to be in kind of miserable shape. So everybody I've ever worked with or worked for has imparted some kind of advice to me. Maybe the last piece I would give, and this is something that I tell folks that are trying, just starting their career anywhere. I had an editor at Dark Horse tell me once, uh, this guy named Randy Stradley, he was one of my editors on the Star Wars books. I had delivered a script late to him, which was totally normal. I like I was notoriously late with my scripts. And so I apologized to him and he pulled me aside. He said, look, I look for three things in, in a writer. You have to be talented. You have to be on time and you can't be a jerk. And he's like, but the trick is you only need to have two of the three. <laughs> and like for me to keep hiring you, he's like, ideally you have all three, but nobody has all three. Right. So like he's like, you should strive for all three. But, you know, it's like so. So I was like, oh, so it was a backhanded compliment, I guess. You're telling me I'm not a jerk and I'm talented, so I don't, I, I can be late with my script, right? But I, I tell people, like, think about those three, whatever those three things are for your industry. But it's like, and being being not a jerk, I think kind of trumps all of them. <laughs> people will put up with a lot if you're not a jerk, right? Like, you know, that like will help you along, you know, it, it will help you grow, will, will help you if you're not on time. Like all those things are it's so much easier when you're not a jerk. So I actually prioritize those. Don't be a jerk first, you know, then 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 be talented, then be on time, right? And those are the the, the kind of way I was tackling it. Although in our industry, being on time is really important sometimes. So you kind of have to know what, what you know, which most, most important with everybody. But find out what those things are for your manager or for the people around you. And then, you know, make sure that you live the most important ones. That's a really, really, really good piece of advice. Um, you totally already 
preemptively answered my next question, which is what what advice do you have for aspiring game designers and developers hoping to get into the industry? But you, you basically my real piece of advice if you're an aspiring game designer or developer is, is build a game, right? Like when I first started in the industry, you couldn't, right? There was really, I mean, you could do pen and paper stuff and you could, which is actually still a really great experience too. And again, I writing RPGs as a kid and I was doing that in isolation for the most part and games is collaborative, right? So being able to find a couple other people, even if it's very small, go out and get Unity or Unreal, right? Like there's so many tools now. Uh, there's a bunch of free engines, figure out what type of game you want to make, what engine is going to work the best and just make something, even if it's bad, because making something bad is going to teach you more than making nothing, right? Like, and you know, there's a joke in screenwriting, you know, the only, the only screenplay that doesn't get sold is the one that's never written. And it's, it's true with games too, right? The only, the only game that doesn't get played is the one that's not made, right? So if you have an idea for a game, go make it. And even if that game never sells and nobody really likes it or, you know, you'll go out and do other things. You're going to learn so much about the process and about working with other people and about yourself. That I think it, I, I wish that I'd had that opportunity, like when I was in college. And I think a lot of college programs have that now. So and and build as many as you can, right? Like, and try a bunch of different things because you'll and try a bunch of different roles because you can now. You know, and that's not something that you know 20 years ago we were really afforded. Yeah, we're very very lucky in this day and age. I think just to have access to people and access to tools and access to YouTube <laughs> and all of that. Oh yeah, I mean, I was going on. I, I was amazed the other day. I went on YouTube just to see, like, I wanted a tutorial for something with ChatGPT, right? And there's like 40 of them already, right? It's like, oh okay, you know. So even me, I have to keep reminding myself. Oh my gosh, there's this wealth of information out there that can teach me, you know, stuff that I I still need to learn. I mean always be learning too that's not I, it's stupid advice everybody gives it but it's super true right like if you know always be curious always be learning uh, i tell my kids you know what's more important being you know smart or curious and it's like well being you know being curious because curious will lead to smart you know that's really 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 awesome piece of advice <laughs> okay well so we are basically wrapping up here but and you have talked about your startup and your game a little bit but is there anything you kind of want to make sure gets out there that people should know about your stealth game startup and the game you're working on? I can't say too much about the new game that we're working on. I can say I'm super excited about the team that you know we've assembled for it. And uh, it's a great mix of folks. We feel like we're onto something that feels different. Again, familiar, but new, which I think is really a, a kind of the trick with kind of a, a new game. And it is a new original IP and kind of a new you know, gameplay paradigm in some ways, but has a lot of touchstones that hopefully people will be really excited about. Uh, yeah, but if anybody's interested in knowing more about it, they can always reach out to me. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm around, so and I love to talk about it. So I'm happy to give more information if folks want to sign an NDA. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We do have a couple minutes left. So just an option, a fun bonus kind of thing. We could do a rapid fire word association game. So like I'll say like five to six different gaming terms. I literally will say a word and then you just say whatever you think of. <laughs> That's an option. Awesome. Or okay. I can ask you for your like favorite character loadout. So like if you like to play FPS games, what your favorite guns are, or if you like to play RPGs, what your favorite like stats are, or your huh. top five favorite games that you've ever played ever. Oh my gosh, that one's so hard. Like that, that, that one should be the easiest one, but that's like, I don't even know. It's like whatever I'm playing now and then go back to like, you know, some crazy Rygar, the first game I ever beat, you know? 
I, I think I'm going to be really bad at it, which might make it really funny. So maybe let's do the word association one, right? Because the loadout one's another one where I like I will end up going on forever because I will tell you I play a shit ton of RPGs and I always go in going I'm going to try being the fighter this time, and whatever happens, I end up being the crazy magic user every single time, no matter what, right? Like so I can't I, I can't break myself out of it. No matter, you know. <laughs> That's Skyrim. It's I still play Skyrim. I still play. Put in a couple hours a week on Skyrim. That's awesome. Yeah. So let, let's do the word association because I'm really curious to see how bad I am. Okay. At it. I've okay. Never done it. okay. First game. Rygar. <laughs> Multiplayer. See, I'm terrible at this. Multi like because like what happens is my mind gets overloaded, right? Like you say multiplayer, and immediately I go. I'm gonna say Antarctica, and then you'll have to ask me why some other time. <laughs> really really want to ask you why but okay because i'll tell you the first multiplayer game i played was with my uncle who was stationed in antarctica and we played doom because they, he just got the land installed at the base in antarctica and he wanted to play it with some people so a bunch of us that uh, you know played it i think at lucas arts and we were playing i don't know not sorry not doom um unreal tournament and with with guys in antarctica it was amazing and i was like this is what playing multiplayer is like i'm playing with my uncle halfway around the world that is amazing. Okay, we're gonna move on, but that is literally the coolest thing ever. Um, arcade. Uh, <laughs> Dragon's Lair. <laughs> nice. Uh, sound effect. Vox. <laughs> okay, okay. Character. <laughs> that you're gonna laugh. It's, I think, a Pulp Fiction because there's a line in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> says you are a character it doesn't mean you have character or something like that and it always stuck in my head right it's like good movie, <laughs> the good movie. Yeah. okay okay fair yeah. um optimization uh, horrible <laughs> that's literally uh almost worst word part for... of game development yeah that's word for word what brett said when i asked him the same thing rpg last one skyrim may yeah, i the quintessential rpg yeah thank you so much i hope you have a wonderful rest of your evening yeah you too you. and um yeah good luck editing this i know i rambled thank a bunch you. on no, it was some great. of those answers it was but... great. thank you so much for listening to this episode of rise above we look forward to bringing you more insider conversations with game industry leaders if you enjoyed the listen we'd love for you to rate and review the show it helps so much please subscribe for future episodes. Check out our website at AscendantStudios.com to keep up with the game we're making and find us on all socials as Ascendant Studios. You can also sub to our newsletter, The Stand Up, to get bonus insights from the developers we talk to on this show and more. We'll be back soon with more insightful, one-of-a-kind conversations with some of the most experienced and successful game devs in the world. For now, this is Tess, signing off.